puts a fadeaway over him and knocks it down. Oh, what a night for Kevin Durant. Nets on the move, they give it to Griffin. Back to Harris, left wing three. Oh, it's good! Kevin Durant with 38 points tonight. Moving into the front court. Three on the way, got it again! Welcome to another edition of the Voice of the Nets podcast. I'm Chris Carino. Great to have you with us here. We've got a uh, a show that deals with the pivot that the NBA does at this time of year where they go from crowning a champion to a quick turn into the NBA draft. It's coming up on June 23rd in Brooklyn. We're going to talk with Nets assistant GM, Jeff Peterson. Even though the Nets don't have a pick, that could always change. And you're always looking to uh, do your due diligence uh, and try and find people that maybe don't get drafted you could add to your, uh, to your roster. And we'll talk to Jeff about the process. We'll also talk to college basketball insider from CBS Sports Network, John Rothstein. And we'll get the lowdown on some of the college players and the college game. You know, I'm a, I'm a play-by-play guy. and we're having all these these guys that evaluate college basketball talent and young basketball players, and I can't help but think of the correlation between the two. You know, as a play-by-play guy, you look for details, and you like to use words and metaphors to create images and to communicate your message. And when I think of personnel scouts in sports, and there's a, there's a famous guy that comes to mind. He passed away last year, but a, a New York City legend, beloved guy, Tom Konchalski. Capper, Tim Capture always brings him up on the air, always likes to, to throw out some quotes from Tom Konchalski. And he had a couple of them that were great. One, I remember so, there was, um, he's a mountain masquerading as a man. Or... He scores the way we breathe. And one I liked was, he has the body of a blacksmith with the touch of a surgeon. I love that stuff. It's like songwriters also. You know, they use that imagery and words to create meaning and communicate. I, I, I love songs with great lyrics. I'm drawn to to singer-songwriters, lyricists. I I heard a song the other day, great Lumineers song, a a new album. Maybe maybe we'll do this as a segment. We'll we'll have an album of the week. But the the new album from the Lumineers, Brightside, has an opening line that just, it it stopped me in my tracks. Because, you know, I love words, and it's about words. And it said, I could see it in the air. Every word was like smoke from a cigarette. Love that imagery. And I learned how to do play-by-play when I was at Fordham uh, at at WFUV. And and our broadcast coach was a legendary uh, broadcaster by the name of Marty Glickman, great Brooklynite as well. And Marty would, would stress searching for those details the words, the economy of words, metaphors, whatever it may be, that helps paint a picture in someone's mind. And he would, he would encourage us to practice this when we walked around campus. Look for the little details that can help someone get a better picture of what it is that you're seeing. Now, I don't walk around campus anymore, but sometimes I'll do this on, on my drive to Barclays Center for a net game. Particularly, you, you come across the Verrazano Bridge and you look out to your right and you notice, you know, the water. Is it calm? Is it choppy? How many boats are out there? Maybe there's one of those big tankers that's got that unreasonable amount of cargo just stuffed onto its back as it sails off toward the ocean. And beyond that, you can see all the way out to Coney Island, you know, the iconic a uh, parachute jump there that's that's defunct now, but it's a, it's a symbol of Coney Island. You can see it out there in the distance. And you keep looking from right to left, all the way back across the bridge. And you notice all of Brooklyn and how expansive it is. All the way down to, you look out to your left in lower Manhattan and the majestic uh, Freedom Tower rising up from the, the lower part of Manhattan. And, and if you look 
Off to the left, you can find the Statue of Liberty. Out there in the harbor, it's really small. It's got New Jersey right behind it. That's the kind of description that I'm talking about that you, that you long for. And it inspires me every day when I drive out there because I look at it and I go, in a few hours, I get to describe the greatest athletes in the world. And my voice fills this space. The words like smoke from a cigarette. Right? I love that. A little bit further down the road, you get to the HSS Center. That's the headquarters of the Nets. And this time of year, it is bustling with young basketball talent. Guys that have worked their whole lives at the little details that they hope will get them to the NBA. And they hope that someone will notice those little details and someone will be able to articulate them, come up with images, communicate them to the powers that be that maybe they'll end up getting drafted or getting signed to a team. And one of the guys is part of that process for the Nets, whose job it is to try and notice those details, is assistant GM Jeff Peterson. We'll talk to him on the show. And nobody knows the details of the college game more than college basketball insider for CBS Sports Network and Compass Media Networks, my colleague, John Rothstein. We'll talk to him. All that on a very detail-oriented Voice of the Nets. Jeff Peterson is the assistant GM for the Nets under Sean Marks, and he was named by The Athletic one of the 40 under 40 in NBA executives. That would be the top 40, like Casey Kasem, only with NBA executives under 40 years old. So he's a rising star. You get the picture. Uh, He has an interesting basketball background because he's been with a lot of great brands. You know, DeMatha High School, Iowa. Arkansas, Florida State, you know, before going to the NBA. And uh, Jeff, do you have another year? Can we, we, you've already had the, (laughs) the, uh, the Big Ten, the SEC, the ACC. Maybe we could get you a year in the Big East. We'll give Mike Anderson a call over at St. John's. You got another year of eligibility left, maybe? That would be amazing. I I don't, however, I don't know if Coach Anderson would, uh, would appreciate that at, at this stage. I've, I've slowed slowed down a little bit, but uh, I, I wish I did. What kind of player were you? Yeah, so I think, you know, growing up, um, the thing that stands out the most was just, you know, competitive. Um, so that that always, I try to always lead with that. Um, you know, I, every time I stepped on the, on the floor, whether it was practice, whether it was at the park, um, playing pickup, of course, in the actual game, it was, you know, you have to compete. Um, and that doesn't mean, you know, you're necessarily doing the, the flashiest things by any means, but, you know, you, you got to do the little things that ch- try to help give your teams extra possessions and um, grow. Guard, you know, shooter, growing. defender, what kind of player were you? Yep, yep. So g- g- growing up, I learned the game from my dad. And the thing that stood out the most, I, I vividly remember him saying, like, d- defense. Defense was always the priority. Um, you know, your offense will waver at times. You may, There's going to be nights where you're not making shots. Um, maybe you're turning it over, but a coach will have to keep you on the court if you can defend. So that was my priority, uh, you know, on, on the defensive end, just to kind of pressure the ball and uh, be physical and sacrifice my body in any way possible. On the offensive end, I was uh, played the point guard position. So my role, the way I kind of approached that and thought about it was I just wanted to be an extension of of the coach onto the court. So, um, look, there would be some nights, depending on matchups, that I may try to be a little bit more aggressive in terms of scoring the ball. But I I think my kind of default, I guess, mindset was always – getting others involved. How can I make the, you know, the game easier, easier for my teammates. So constantly just trying to play the the chess game and, and figure out different matchups and things like that. Well, it's easy to see why then you would be, uh, you would excel at identifying talent and putting a team together because you just described, I mean, I don't know, physically, you probably just didn't have the, you know, the chops to be an NBA player, but that mentality, everything you're describing, I would imagine is, is what you're looking for when you're looking to build a team. 
Absolutely. It's a great point. You know, obviously there's a bit of a sliding scale depending on what, what positions we're, you know, scouting and yeah. trying to add to the, to, to, to the team. But there's a few things that, that are non-negotiable. And like, as I said earlier, just, you know, competitive makeup, someone who has some level of toughness. And of course, you know, we, we're always looking for guys who play the game the right way, unselfish. And, and again, that, that was always my mentality, stepping on the floor. Um, you, you just got, got to – the game's much funner, right? Much more fun when, when you play that way, when you're, you're getting guys involved. Now, it, it started out in high school. DeMath is a, a famed high school in, in a lot of sports. Um, some great players have come through there over the years. It's in uh, Hyattsville, Maryland, right? So it's down in the, in the Baltimore, D.C. area? Correct. Hyattsville, Maryland. It's about uh, 10 minutes down the road from uh, University of Maryland in College Park. Now, did you have, uh, uh, you're, you're a little, wait, wait, I'm trying to think, Kevin Durant is from that area. Did you, do you go back to Kevin? Did you know him from Maryland? Yeah, Kevin. So when I mo- I'm originally from Springfield, Missouri, I, uh, I moved to Maryland to, to go to DeMatha. I wanted okay. to essentially play against better competition and um, so when I, I was very fortunate when I moved there, of course, I started to play AAU and that's when I first met Kevin. We, we played on the same AAU team. So at the time uh-huh. it was DC Blue Devils. Um, so again, you can imagine coming from Springfield, Missouri and then, you know, being kind of immersed in, in that, that uh, environment, just the level of competition in, in that area is amazing. So of course, Kevin being the, the best to, to come out of that that area. Uh, so just being able to interact with him. And, and there's so many other good players that come out of the area on, on a daily basis and compete with them. Um, v- very neat opportunity. Did Sam Cassell go to DeMatha? I want to say he was from no, that area it's, too, it's, right? Sam from Baltimore. He, he went to Dunbar. Dunbar. Um, so, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Man, but, there were some, some good schools down there. <laughs> there really are. Really was are. Kevin, think, was Kevin uh, in AAU? I mean, could you did you see what? Could you see the crystal ball and, and what he was going to be? Yeah, I, I think, look, obviously physically he was always, he's always been unique, just different than everyone else. Um, so at that time, of course, he was still just trying to adjust to his body and grow and, you know, get acclimated from that standpoint. But the thing that I, I always appreciated about Kevin the most was just, again, his competitive makeup and his work ethic. He, the guy, I, I don't, I, I've never met anyone who loves the game of basketball more than him. He's constantly trying to master his craft to this day, but that yeah. you, you definitely saw that back then. He would, you know, just spend hours and hours in the game, you know, in, excuse me, in the gym working on his game. What he would just love to go watch basketball, whatever it may be. He just wanted to be around the game. So you could see he had the passion and the work ethic to be good. And um, that's essentially why I think he's again, the, the best player to play. Well, I, I want to temper the expect uh, not temper. I want to manage the expectation level of our audience right now. We're getting into Kevin Durant here talking about it as a kid. Um, I, I have Jeff on here today because we want to introduce you to a really cool member of the Nets staff and somebody that's an interesting basketball story and let you in a little bit on the process as we get ready for the draft. So this is not going to be a uh, breaking news segment, okay? This is not going to be, we're not going to touch on free agency or uh, trades or coaches or players. We're probably we're not even going to mention anybody except for Kevin Durant by name, which we've already done. So I, I just, I just want to manage people's expectations of that because this is something I want you to get to know. Jeff Peterson, who plays an important role in in, in a team uh, that has high expectations, and you know, Jeff, you've been the assistant GM. You came from the Atlanta Hawks with Andy Birdsell. So you guys, kind of, you, you worked together with Atlanta, then you come in, and now you're part of the tree under Sean Marks. Um, I'll even throw uh, Matt Riccardi in there as the GM of the Long Island Nets. I kind of look at you guys as a, the trio of, uh, yep. of the young guys that, that come underneath Sean Marks in the, in the basketball operations pecking order. So what are your responsibilities and, and how does it get divvied up? Where do you see your path and, and your responsibilities in the Nets front office? Yeah, I think when, first I'll say Sean's done a tremendous job of assembling this front office and, you know, his vision is, of course, we all have our specialties um, in areas of, uh, I'll say that, that we feel the most comfortable in, but there's a lot of versatility amongst the staff as well. So we can cross over and, and help, help out in, in, in multiple ways. But um, 
you know, f- from a responsibility standpoint, I'm primarily responsible for our college scouting department. Um, would not be able to, I know you mentioned Riccardi and, and Andy, but wouldn't, would not be able to do that with the rest of our scouts and, uh, BJ Johnson plays an extremely yeah. crucial role in that process as well. He's, um, very, very great, great human being, but in terms of identifying talent, he's, he's amazing. So, um, I've worked with very closely with BJ and the rest of our scouts, our regional scouts in terms of college scouting. And then, um, but again, as I said before, we, we all kind of, the beautiful thing about Sean is he, he, he doesn't believe in silos or one person just does that one thing. Now we all have our expertises and areas that we have to cover. But um, again, I delve into pro scouting and international scouting and, and G league scouting. So um, I, I really love just the versatility amongst our staff. Well, so there's, there's a lot to cover here, a lot of ground. First of all, we're getting toward the draft, and a lot of people in the NBA and, and a lot of NBA fans kind of become, uh, throw themselves into the college game around the NCAA tournament, uh, around draft time. But for you, when does the preparation begin? Has it, like, has it already begun for next year's draft? Can you, can you get us a little bit of the insight on, on just you know, how extensive and detail-oriented that is? Very. Uh, it's a great point you bring up, Chris. It, it and I, I don't want to be cliche, but it, it truly never stops. The process yeah. never never stops. Yeah. So, yeah, there there's there's events this week and next week and right after this draft, preparing for the upcoming draft. Um, some of those are international events. Some of those are domestic events. But um, let's just take a calendar for, for this example. So, let's just say for the the twenty. This 2022 draft, you know, essentially starts in September, this past September. That's when we're allowed to start going to college practices, September and October. So, um, you know, there's a little bit more immediate focus on this this upcoming draft at that point. Um, but what happens is our regional scouts were spread out all over the uh, the country. And then, of course, we have international scouts in the rest of the world. But um, they're, they're constantly populating a list, right, in terms of um, – level of play and position and system fit and things like that. Um, and what happens is, you know, their job is to initially eliminate, right. Cause we don't want to spend time uh, on, on prospects that we don't think would be valuable for, for our team and, and system. But so they eliminate, but then at the same time, they're all, they're continuing to work and then they eventually recommend. So they'll say, you know, BJ, I think you need to go spend some time on player X. Uh, so BJ will then go, uh, spend time on that player. And then if he likes him, um, then he'll kind of bubble that up to myself and Sean. And, and that's where we will really go dig in. But, um, and of course th- that's just from a subjective standpoint. We also, you know, have an analytics department that plays a huge role in, into our uh, draft process and our, and our pro process, of course. So we're constantly just trying to figure out, uh, you know, where there's consistency in the information um, and what lines up and where we all have agreement. And those are kind of the players that we, we dig in. So, uh, that starts in September and October, but throughout the season, you know, of course, we're going to games, we're going to practices, we're doing a ton of background work, we're going to college campuses to to spend time and, and figure out um, what makes a guy tick. Um, and, and, you know, we have a ton of college calls and meetings, um, so it's it's pretty, pretty steady cadence. Um, and then after the college season finishes, excuse me, that's when we'll get into the draft workout process. So... You know, our, our goal is to, I wouldn't say get as many guys in as possible, but of the relevant prospects that we really want to see, that's who we target and that's who we want to bring into to Brooklyn. So that process starts in April, May, um, and that goes all the way up and we'll have a draft workout sometimes the day of the draft. So that's that's a little bit uh background on, on yeah, the Yeah, it's got to be fluid, right? Because you don't know you could end up with a pick that you didn't know you had. You know, you got to be, I guess, prepared to to make a pick at any point in the draft. I mean, you could probably, I would imagine now you're eliminating the, the top, you know, lottery pick kind of guys, um, not to speak out of turn. I don't, you know, I don't know if the Nets are going to be moving up into the lottery. I don't think that's <laughs> a, probably going to happen. So you, you, so, I mean, I guess a lot of that is, is determined of like realistically, right. Who you have a chance to possibly draft or even guys that are going to go undrafted. Is that kind of the, the pool of players that you're looking at right now as we lead up to the draft? 
Correct. Correct. Yeah. Like, uh, I, I think this year, again, it's you hit on the head. We don't, so we don't have a pick right now. So it's all about trying to figure out how, how you prioritize and spend your time. Um, so you're exactly right. It's, we're, we're not going to spend a ton of time on the, on the top, top of the draft right now, just cause we, we don't have a way to get there. But, you know, I love the word that you used earlier, pr- preparation. You got to be prepared. Anything could happen. Um, sure. on draft night, we could get a call from a team that wants us to, you know, wants to trade us the, 15th pick. Well, we got to be prepared. So just because we don't have a pick right now, that doesn't mean we don't stop, uh, continue with our video studies and draft calls and draft workouts, um, yeah. just overall background information. And without having a pick, you know, I would imagine you're, you're looking at, all right, guys that may slip out of the draft, right? And, and guys then you can sign as free agents. So you probably have some guys that you're, you know, right now you're kind of rooting to, I mean, not that you want to root for a guy not to get drafted, but because uh, some it might even be better for that player sometimes not to get drafted, and then they have their choice right of where they want to go. That's absolutely correct. You know, uh, I think you're seeing it more and more now too. Just there's a couple di- more different options out there, and uh, yeah, on draft night, there's there's certainly some agents who would uh, prefer you know their their client goes undrafted. Um, just because again, they, they get to choose their own destination, but we're spending a ton of time right now on, on guys who we think could easily go undrafted. Um, because we tell our, you know, we tell our staff all the time that there's plenty of Fred Van Vliet was undrafted, right? Gabe Vincent with the heat, Max Struess. Uh, there's plenty of players that go undrafted and are able to make an impact. Wesley Matthews, like there's, there's countless examples. So if, if if we can, um, hit on one of those guys, it, it can truly alter, uh, I'd say the trajectory of the franchise in, in a positive way. Well, and you guys did a great job last year, late in the first round, second round picks, undrafted players, and in, in, in building some young players that you hope will develop going forward. Um, where where are the slots they could fit now? Like when you look at what's going on right now, if you're talking about signing undrafted rookies. Where do you put them? What are sort of the the options for you guys? I know there, there's two way. There's you know, regular roster, there's G League. Can you give us a glimpse of to sort of the, the slots that they could fit right now? Sure. I, I can. So I'll start with, yeah, absolutely. One option is they could be on the, on the regular roster. Um, that's, that's happened before where you sign a guy or, you know, maybe he plays summer league with you and he's in your gym a lot and really impresses you. Um, that's an option to, to is there put a on the scale for that, Jeff? Is there, is there a, a salary scale or is that just negotiated with his agent for as much as he, as he can get? That's just negotiated with the agent. Um, so it's not the, like a draft, draft picks have to get paid a certain scale, correct? Uh, first round picks. There's okay, a, there's a rookie picks. scale for first round picks and then second, second is pretty much open as well. Okay. Um, but then, and that's the same as, same as undrafted. So, um, so the regular team is certainly an option. Uh, the G league is, definitely an option whether that's with a you know on a two-way contract it, it could be um you know you just give them a little bit of money just to come to training camp and we'll say look maybe that goes well then maybe you do make the regular roster you'll come to camp and fight for a spot um to make the regular roster so there's definitely a few different options um of course every team out there we all uh, I don't want to say have the same mechanisms because it just depends on where, you know, where teams are in terms of the salary and if they've used their two ways, but essentially have the same level of playing field. So then you got to figure out what are the outliers that can um, or help differentiate your franchise. Why would, why would a player and an agent want to come? Why, you know, why would they choose your organization to start their career? The G League is, is, has, has kind of developed over the years now where everybody's affiliated with a team, um, I, I mean, the, the organizations are affiliated with each other. So the Long Island Nets are owned by the Brooklyn Nets. Um, not every player the Nets have the rights to. But does the does the Long Island Nets, the system and the coaches, does it mirror what's going on with Brooklyn? And is that a good way to sort of um, understand a player and, and wh- what his ceiling may be by seeing him go through the process of playing for Long Island? Absolutely. I, I think, you know, and each team has their different philosophies on it. So I, I don't know if there's necessarily a right or wrong way, but f- for us, we, we, we view Long Island truly as an extension of, of Brooklyn. Um, it's, it's a developmental culture, um, not just for the players, but coaching staff, training staff, uh, front office, um, just all around. We, we want, you know, people in 
affiliated with Long Island to, to truly get a great experience and have a chance to develop. So uh, speaking about players specifically, absolutely. We, uh, you know, it's a similar playbook, um, try to use the same terminology, um, similar, I would say just practice format structure. Um, Cause again, that that's the goal, right? We want, ideally you're, if it's a two way or exhibit 10, or maybe it's a player that, there's a local tryout guy. And, but if we call them up to Brooklyn, we want that transition to be as seamless as possible. Yeah. Um, and I think the, the only way you can do that is to, again, be truly invested and, and hopefully have it mirror, mirror one another. So the, the scouting report on you, Jeff, is um, aside from your playing days. Uh, and, okay. and by the way, we, we talked about Mike Anderson before. You kind of overlapped with him at Arkansas. He ends up, now he's a St. John's head coach. So there is a chance you could go play in the Big East if you want to <laughs> uh, get another Big Five conference in there. Um, yeah. But yeah, Damari Carroll was his nephew, I think, right? Did you have Damari Carroll yeah. in Atlanta too? And then again with Brooklyn. Yep. Yep. Damari. We had Damari in, uh, in Atlanta. Uh, Damari was one of my favorite players to be around in Atlanta. He, another guy who would just, again, chip on the shoulder, uh, I would say overlooked in a lot of ways. But, um, when you talk about a guy who competes and work at, works at his craft and, um, maximizes potential, um, that that was such a fun team to be around, you know, that year in Atlanta when we won 60 games, just cause, and he, Damari was just as part of his, anyone just helped, Helped us play the right way. Um, so yeah, no, Demar Demar is great. Yeah, he, he did. He did a little bit uh, in Brooklyn as well when you guys brought him in. Um, and but your scan report is that you know, I, and I, I remember when you first joined the Nets. I, I, I probably met you for the first time on the team bus going. You know, we're on the road somewhere, um, and you're just so friendly and easy to talk to. And I could imagine that's the kind of thing that uh, helps you out. That's what I, I I've heard about you and and is that you can talk to anybody uh, from the, the the guy who's, you know, working on the, the, the floors at the arena to, you know, high-level executives. But I do know, you know, I use this, we had, we had Jason, Willie, uh, Jason uh, Collins on our podcast recently, and I, you know, Jason's such a kind guy and a friendly person, but he was tough on the floor. And I said, you know, don't mistake kindness for weakness. You know, that's a term that you got sometimes with nice guys. To be a GM in this league, I would imagine there's got to be a certain amount of, you are a, you have to be decisive, you have to be uh, stringent, you have to lay the hammer down a lot of times, it's a big organization you're in charge of. How do you look down the road and say, when I'm going to be a GM one day, how do I keep that relatability and yet, you know, still have that that toughness you may need as a GM. Have you thought about that? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I think um, it is, it's truly a balance. You know, you, you want to stay true to yourself who you are and be authentic because if you're not, people will certainly see through that. But um, I, my philosophy on, on the GM job and getting getting to watch Sean do it every day is, is a great experience. And um, it's it's in a lot of ways, it's truly not a basketball job. You, you're, you're spending so much time just whether it's with ownership or coaching staff, you're just managing, you're managing a ton of people. Um, and I, I think there's a time and place. Um, you're certainly right. You, you have to be very decisive when you're, when you're making some decisions, but, and you have to have some very, very tough, honest conversations. Cause I, I think if, if people know where you're coming from with those honest conversations, um, uh, and they know that the intentions are, are, you know, they're coming from a positive place and you truly want to just help them uh, maximize their potential. Um, I, I think for the most part, those, those tend to go well. Um, maybe sometimes not in the moment. It may get a little contentious or heated in the moment. But, you know, when everyone takes a step back and reflects, it's I think we all um, hopefully realize that, you know, we're all in this together and, and trying to achieve the same thing. Well, Jeff, we really appreciate you joining us. It was great getting to uh, talk to you, letting the folks uh, get to know you a little bit. Uh, hopefully, you're around for a, a while. Maybe you'll get the jump up one day and somewhere else, but we certainly uh, appreciate you coming on here today and talking with us. Thanks, Jeff. I really appreciate your time, Chris, and uh, enjoy, uh, enjoy the rest of, of your day. Thank you.
All right, college basketball insider John Rothstein joining us right now. How you doing, John? Never better, Chris. Great to be with you. Well, if you don't if you don't know John's stuff, I mean, you must not follow college basketball at all because he is the hungriest college basketball <laughs> insider. And I that, that's part of your Twitter handle, but um it's a it's a double meaning because I know that aside from your hunger for information, Yes. And that's how people get you. You're also very hungry for food. You do yes. you do a lot of food um critiques and things like that. Uh so we'll let let's save that. Let's get okay. a, we'll we'll get back to that in a little bit. But your college hoops today uh dot com, college hoops today, the podcast, which I mean, you get if you think there's a college basketball coach that is too big to go on the college hoops uh, college hoops today podcast from compass media networks where you and i are colleagues mm -hmm. um it i don't is there anybody that you wanted that you haven't gotten yet on that podcast now we've really been fortunate chris and you know i want to give a, a shout out to our boss and intrepid leader peter kosan for yes you know supporting me on this venture you know which started chris in 2015 which was kind of you know, you think about it a couple of years before the big podcast rush. So I had a conversation. I remember this, Chris, and you can appreciate this because you spent many you know times on the road in this business. I remember I went to a Mississippi State practice and I was driving from Starkville, Mississippi to Nashville to watch Vanderbilt practice. That was a uh, one yeah. of the teams, you know, with Kevin Stallings before he moved on to Pittsburgh. And I remember talking to Peter in the car about the idea of doing a weekly podcast and he was into it and he supported it. And, you know, we're just thrilled that, you know, we're able to have the consistency and the support that we have from Compass Media Networks. It's the only college basketball podcast that comes to, you know, fans and consumers every single day of the calendar year 52 weeks out of the yeah. year and you know i you know we still obviously try to you know produce obviously compelling quick hitting content with obviously a compelling guest each week and you do and you're also a, a cbs sports insider cbs sports network you hear is you're you're a great guest everywhere when people want to talk college basketball so when i uh had this we had this idea and we were talking about you know getting ready for the draft which is coming up um who better to dive into some of the college players at this time of year than John Rothstein? Because you know, as you know, John, a lot, at this time of the year, all the NBA people become college basketball experts, sure. whether they are or not. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and thankfully, I part of the NBA uh, travel, I don't have to make that ride from Mississippi State up to <laughs> Nashville. No question. No question, uh, yeah. Yeah. John, let, let's talk about the, the overall body of people that are in the draft right now and how that has changed because when it comes to the nil maybe you can get mm -hmm. into what an nil is the transfer portal is and and what kind of impact that has made now on on the nba draft well, I think what we're seeing now is, Chris, that there is a big discrepancy between, you know, what is a productive college basketball player in a lot of ways at certain positions in the year 2022 and what the NBA deems as somebody that a franchise is willing to invest a first round pick in. So what we're seeing is guys who have been very, very good and productive college players who may not be forecasted to be first or even second round picks at the NBA level can now go back to college and benefit financially off their name, image, and likeness. It's been an unbelievable way for college basketball to keep some of its best players in the sport. I mean, you look at this past offseason, Kentucky's Oscar Shibway, Michigan's Hunter Dickinson, Indiana's Trace Jackson Davis, North Carolina's Armando Baycott. All those players have went back to college. They'll be able to benefit monetarily, something that was long, long overdue. And that's something that, you know, has been really, really good for college basketball. Because, Chris, when you and I were growing up, we were able to recognize the players year in, year out. We grew up with Leitner yeah. and Hurley and Shaquille O'Neal staying yeah, multiple teams years that had juniors at and seniors. Yeah, yeah, and now we're starting to see that back a little bit. Now, as far as the immediate eligibility aspect of college basketball and college sports goes, that's something that we have to get under control from the college perspective because the NCAA passed a couple of years ago a rule that every player – 
had a one-time transfer exception to play immediately without sitting out because, you know, transfers have always had, you know, to sit out in men's basketball. And that's something that's been a rule that's been stretched a little bit. We're seeing players who have transferred once with immediate eligibility, you know, now obviously submit waivers and be eligible a second time. So that needs to be tightened a little bit, in my opinion, if we're going to stabilize the sport. But the upside that we've seen from name, image and likeness has been absolutely sensational. I think if we can stabilize the transfer portal aspect of college basketball, because another unintended consequence of this is when players transfer from one school to another, a lot of credits are lost in the transfer process. You know, only a small percentage of these guys are going to be bona fide NBA players. So the academic component needs to be obviously prioritized as well. But all in all, right now, the on-court product in college basketball has been as good as it's been in a long, long time. And I think you saw that, Chris, with the way the NCAA tournament was played and the level that it was played at. Yeah, and you know, you mentioned the NILs. I would imagine that North Carolina is bringing back, yeah. you know, basically four starters. Four starters. And, and they're all really good players. But mm-hmm. probably, I mean, without NILs, I mean, you mentioned Baycott. Maybe a couple others would have been in this draft. No, no question. And now, you know, a player, if they want to support their family, if they want to make a little extra money, they don't have to go to the G League. They don't have to go to Europe. They don't have to do those things. They don't have to work to try and be a second round pick to benefit monetarily. Again, they're going to benefit because they should have the right to profit off their name, image and likeness. And also college basketball is going to benefit because we're going to have now players, again, who are recognizable names that are synonymous with the sport, staying in college for longer periods of time. Yeah, and and that'll benefit the college. And it it benefits the NBA, really, too, because these guys are going to be a a little more prepared, I think, more seasoned. You know, you're not taking as much of a risk with some of these guys. And and I think there will be a time, I know that the league is going to change now where you're going to be able to come straight out of high school yeah. to the NBA. That'll, that rule will change things, I think, for the better too as well, because you won't have a lot of kids that are just looking to do one and done. Well, anymore. Chris, another thing too, and I just noticed this because, you know me, I'm a college guy, 365 days a year, but, you know, socially, yeah. I watch some of the NBA playoffs. Everybody talks about, you know, comparing the NBA and college basketball, and I understand the natural comparison, but it's really two different sports. The college basketball still features, obviously, a plethora of behind-the-basket big men. I just mentioned a handful with Hunter Dickinson, Trace Jackson Davis, Armando Baycott. If you look at the NBA... The way that positions are interchangeable, especially in the front court, is just a vast difference from what we see, what we saw 20 to 25 years ago. I mean, Todd McCullough. Hakeem Olajuwon, the Kemba Tumbo, Patrick yeah. Ewing. These guys would not have a place in today's NBA because there's such a focus on shooting and spacing. So at certain positions, I think you can forecast, obviously, effectively a college player to the NBA. But when you really look at the dynamics, okay, at the one sport to the other, it's completely different. I remember talking to coaches who visited with Billy Donovan, who, you know, you know, head coach of the Chicago Bulls, longtime head coach at Florida and also coached Oklahoma City. And when he was, you know, commiserating with college coaches who wanted to brush up on some concepts, he even said that a lot of the concepts that are implemented in the NBA can't really be applied to college because the skill level and the spacing isn't really comparable. Yeah, some of it trickles down and and some of it gets gets glommed from college. I mean, look, think about John Calipari yeah. and, you know, his five out system. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, drive and kick like that kind of is what the NBA has become a lot sure. of. Uh, and then, you know, you talk about some of the zone defense now that you're seeing in the NBA, which I think you you, you should see more of. Yeah. Um, obviously, that has its its roots in the college game. Um, and it's interesting because when you look at, you know, I, I, I look at some of these guys because obviously the Nets are going to be focused on players that won't get drafted or maybe if they end up with getting a second round pick here and there, right. they're looking at bottom half of the draft or guys that aren't going to get drafted. But from a particular standpoint that the Nets saw in the playoffs this year is that the league is trending toward 
guys in that six five to six eight range yeah. that can switch everything, yeah. that can shoot two way players. And I think of a player like you're watching in the finals right now, Grant Williams yeah. with the Boston Celtics. Not a highly drafted guy, but right. in that six five six six range, can switch everything. Can you can see he can shoot, he can defend. Man, some of these guys, like he was an SEC defensive player of the year. Sure. Like, like you knew. I, I don't understand why teams think, well, we don't know what position he is. So he drops in the draft. Sure. Are you seeing now more interest in guys like they're getting away? The NBA is getting away from, we don't really know what position he is. Right. But we know he does something pretty well. Well, I think, you know, what we're seeing is, you know, in the draft aspect of this, if you're not going to get a franchise caliber talent at the top of the draft, you want somebody who can be a star in their respective role. You want somebody who can flourish in the role that he has to play. And that's something, again, that is you're able, I think, to examine a little bit if you're looking to specify what you're looking for as you get into the 20s and 30s and beyond. So, so John, we're looking at that now. We're we're looking at the Nets are bringing in guys. There's reports of you know who they're who they're meeting with and bringing in for these workouts. Mm-hmm. They may be rooting for some guys to sure. fall out sure. of the draft. Um, it, are there? I mean, because because you look at what the Nets did last year in the draft. I know you're familiar with Cam Thomas, yeah. and Kessler Edwards, and Dayron Sharp, and then yeah. David Duke Jr. went undrafted and they yeah. brought him in a couple of years ago and he worked in the G League and then he's he turned into a guy the Nets really like and and maybe at some point has a future there. So so what are the kind of guys you're looking at that you think could be really good NBA players down the road that may fall out of this draft for one reason or another? You know, it's interesting because there are certain players who I know I'm very fond of and people in college basketball are very fond of you know, but may not be projected to be as high on obviously some draft boards. I think of a guy right now out of Arizona and Christian Coloco, who was pound for pound, inch for inch, one of the most improved players in college basketball last year. You know, he was recruited by Sean Miller last year. He was coached by Tommy Lloyd. I know coaches in college basketball that believe that Christian Coloco is close in terms of long-term upside and potential to Duke's Mark Williams, who statistically was the best shot blocker that ever started at center for Mike Krzyzewski on all his final four teams at Duke. Yeah. I think you're looking at the Nets. Are they going to potentially maybe want to trade up if Christian Coloco, who is not obviously from what I'm gathering, a lock to go, you know, maybe as high as he should. Is that somebody you can get into the 20s or in the 30s? Is Tyrese Martin from UConn, again, one of those versatile wings that has great strength, played multiple positions in college, somebody who I know has played well in the pre-draft process, somebody that you can look at as somebody who can defend multiple positions and has the strength to absorb contact and so on and so forth. So those are a couple of guys I think that, you know, you need to look at. And I also think, you know, what happens on draft night is also going to dictate who's available and who's not available. I would expect, you know, Christian Coloco to go somewhere, obviously, potentially in the first round. But I think he's somebody who could have a lot of value as somebody who may have the talent of a back-end lottery pick but may not go as high. It's actually an interesting storyline, Chris. When you look at the dynamic right now for Arizona in the NBA draft with Christian Coloco, with Dalen Terry, and with Benedict Matherin, who I think is one of the sleeper players in the lottery, Arizona has a chance to have three players selected in the first round of the 2022 NBA draft. That's a storyline right there. It'd be like the equivalent of the uh, NFL, the Georgia defense, where they had like seven guys that were drafted in the first round. Um, and, and again, and these may be names that are going to be out of reach for the Nets. I think, you know, the Nets had a first round pick in Philadelphia is that they deferred now to next year. Mm-hmm. Um, it's see, the thing is, I think it's really hard to say, well, we, we have some guys we really want to take. Are they going to be there at 23? Right. You know, whereas opposed to, you know, kick it down the road to next year where that pick could be, end up being higher if the Sixers aren't that good next year. Sure. So Nets aside, it's really hard to project. Yeah. You know, I, I saw they had a guy in Paul Atkinson from Yale and Notre Dame who came yeah. in and, you know, six seven kind of guy. But, you know, is he a drafted guy? Probably guys they're looking at 
right, down the road if they don't get drafted. Um, he's another Ivy League player of the year. I always love players of the year. Yeah. You know, I, 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 it always amazes me how sometimes a guy could be, like we talked about Grant Williams, be, be a player of, the, player of the year at a good conference and get drafted in the second round. Like, I know right. they may be a 6'4 power forward in their right. team, but I don't know. There's something about them. There's got to be an intangible to them. Sure. If they play that well in a really good conference. Yeah, no doubt about it. You want people who are producers, you want people who can defend, and you want people who are capable of putting the ball in the basket. I'll never forget a conversation that a former NBA head coach had with me once when I was you know, preparing for the draft like I do every year, and he said, the bottom line is, you are who you can guard in the NBA. Yeah. So if you are going to take somebody, he has to be able to guard his position. And you know how big, you know, spacing and shot making is. That is the attribute that is going to translate at this level, especially if you're looking at guys at the wing position. Uh, John Rothstein, so we, we talked about how the the back end of this draft a little bit, um, talking about guys that are staying in college that maybe yeah. dilutes the pool a little bit yeah. for the NBA. But at the top of this draft, do you see, I mean, I, I'll let you say it, uh, guys that are going to be transformative players, that are going to be all NBA players? There is definitely a couple of players at the top of this draft that have a chance to have significant contributions at the professional level. Chet Holmgren, the unicorn, 7-3, you know, out of Gonzaga. Or he's not maybe 7-3, you know, with everything on right now. But He, he looks, looks like taller because he's, he's so skinny. He, I, and I can I, say I, that I, as a skinny guy. Yeah, you're lucky. I envy skinny people. I mean, you know, especially with especially with my metabolism. But you know, Chet Holmgren, you know, is somebody who like look like you said looks seven three. You know, some people said he's seven two or seven feet or whatever. But his wingspan definitely helps with that. But you know, he is a seven footer who came to college, and I remember writing it down in my notes at 195 pounds, I believe. He's somebody who, for all intents and purposes, is unique because he's somebody, Chris who is a three-point shooter on offense, and he's a shot blocker on defense. You know, yeah. a seven-footer who is, again, blocked just under four shots a game, but was 39% from three-point range as a freshman. And, you know, this just puts it in perspective. You know, he blocked 117 shots last year for Gonzaga. The next person who was closest in blocked shots on Gonzaga's team was Drew Timmy with 25 He's somebody, obviously, it's going to be at the top of the draft. Paolo Bancaro out of Duke was extremely productive when it mattered most in the NCAA tournament. Shot over 50% from the field, roughly, in the NCAA tournament, right around, you know, one out of two from the field. He's an elite scorer, and the question I have is, he's go is he an elite scorer at the NBA level on a bad team, or is he somebody who can really be somebody that a franchise can lean on? For yeah. Nets fans out there, I think the Blake Griffin comparison makes a lot of sense. He can initiate offense. He plays with great confidence, and is real size at 6'10". Yeah, Jabbar, if you could be, yeah, yeah, you could be big. If you could be, that's what the NBA is looking for too. Guys that are playmakers with size. Yeah, so then Jabari Smith, who out of Auburn, is an incredible shot maker and, you know, is also somebody who I think knows what he's good at and, and is good at what he knows. I mean, Chris, last year at Auburn, 42% of his field goal attempts were from three-point range. Think probably Jaron Jackson Jr. And in defense of Jabari Smith, he did not have elite point guard play on his roster at Auburn. With all due respect to the guards on that team, it's not like he played with a great table-setting point guard. That could obviously change if he played with a great floor general. The guy who is a little bit of a wild card in terms of the long-term upside and is a little bit different than the guys we just spoke about because Jabari Smith is obviously a forward 6'10", 6'11", can stretch the defense. Paolo Bancaro is a point forward type at 6'10", and Chet Holmgren's a seven-footer. Jaden Ivey out of Purdue is yeah. somebody I think can be a like a volcano at the NBA level because of the spacing that we're going to see played at the professional level. I mean, you know, part of the great blessing of playing at Purdue is you're going to play with a great big man. But if you're somebody like Jaden Ivey, that is going to make, you know, the middle of the paint sometimes congested like the Long Island Expressway on a Friday night in July. So oh, now I we got to Long Island Expressway. I hate the Long Island Expressway. So, but this is somebody too. And, 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 and Jaden Ivey, as long as he doesn't face St. Peter's at some point. Exactly. In the NBA. He'll, he'll exactly. Be okay. He was significantly more, you know, efficient offensively 
as a sophomore than he was a freshman. Also, Chris, very good at you know getting to the free throw line. 11 games this past season with eight or more free throw attempts. Iowa's Keegan Murray is somebody who I think, if he played at a Blue Blood program, would have a lot more pop and interest, okay, in terms of being a top three or four pick. I mean, this guy made a massive leap from an offensive perspective, made 16 three-point shots, Chris, as a freshman, then went to 66 as a sophomore, seven games with 20 and 10. I'm going to go back into the archives a little bit right now. This, to me, reminds me of Boris Diaw when he was with the Phoenix Suns. Leaner, crisper, can obviously handle the ball and be a point forward, great instincts at 6'8". And then I think another guy who you have to look at at the top, but he's a little bit of a mystery man, is Shaden Sharp, who did not play for Kentucky, but is draft eligible and is going to be the mystery player in the lottery. A couple of things to go back on. Boris Diaw once put his espresso down in flip-flops and like touched the top of the backboard one time. I love that story. That's he, incredible. He made the Diaw comparison. And, you know, Jabari Smith's dad played for the Nets. And he, he's a very, he, he had a cup of coffee in the NBA. It was on a really bad Nets team, but he had this unbelievable personality. And he, he was, he was really big too. He's like in that six, nine, six, 10 range. And I always thought it would have made a great globetrotter because yeah. he could do all the globetrotter stuff and he was really funny. But mm-hmm. the, the image I always have of Jabari Smith's father, we're in the Four Seasons Hotel in Toronto. Nice. And I get in an elevator. Picture this. I get in an elevator with Jabari Smith Sr. Yeah. And Richard Simmons. Remember the, the workout guy, Richard yeah, Simmons? Yeah, sure. He was and, he, and he was in like, the shorts and the whole Richard Simmons uniform that you remember him with, right? And Jabari Smith has this huge smile. He's pointing at him like, I know you, but I'm searching for the name. And he's pointing. And he goes, ah, Simmons, Simmons. He's pointing. I was, that's what, So I can't, why, I can't do any of my draft prep looking at this without thinking of Jabari Smith and Richard Simmons in an elevator in Toronto. There you go. Uh, before I let you go, John Rothstein, the, the hungriest basketball insider, the hungry part of it, if you follow on Instagram, John with no H, J-O-N uh, dot Rothstein. I think I'm correct there. On yeah, your IG. you got it. Um, you, you do like some food reviews. Yeah. So and you're a New York guy. Yes. And and you had that shirt. Uh, eat, eat like, like a, a champion. champion today. Yeah. Yeah, eat so like a you're, champion you're, today. You're, you're a mogul. I mean, you're you're just a mogul. Um, so best, best Italian spot in Brooklyn and then in the country. I would say Lilia in Brooklyn. I don't know if you've been there, Chris, it's new school Italian, but my wife and I absolutely love it. It's just the pastas are just intricate. And I actually, for her birthday this past February, I was able to hire a private chef who used to work there and he came to our apartment and cooked dinner for like 15 of her friends. Wow. So we had a little party. It was That's what you get when you're a CBS basketball insider. <laughs> is you have that kind of those kind of connections. Yeah, well, it, it, I kept this card, I'll put it to you that way. It was an incredible <laughs> incredible meal. And like honestly, like I tell people this all the time and you can obviously relate cuz we've done some meals together. It's like when you are fortunate enough to live in New York, especially Manhattan, like people, you know, do different things. You know, Chris, some people play softball. Other people, you know, may, you know, get into, you know, other exercise classes like dining and food becomes like a hobby in terms yes. of places to try, places to eat. So as I've gotten older, you know, I don't have the Chet Holmgren metabolism, as you know. <laughs> what my wife and I do, and I think this has been a really, it's been something to look forward to and it's been fun, fun. is we don't eat pasta for six days a week, but every Sunday we go out to a to an Italian restaurant and have pasta Sunday. So it's like something we always look forward to every week. So we went to Campagnola, which is in our neighborhood l- last Sunday, and had all these different intricate types of pasta. We had the tri-pasta appetizer, which is you have like a <laughs> ziti with a red sauce, a gnocchi with a pesto, and a porcini ravioli with the white mushroom sauce. And then we got a bunch of different, you know, 
pastas in different sauces. So we diversified our palate a little bit. We there do. was an orchette with a broccoli rabe. We had a spaghetti with a cacio pepe. Well, we had, I'm trying to think, we had a paparadel with like, you know, kind of like a cream sauce. And then uh, there you're was making one- me hungry. Stop. I, yeah. I haven't eaten lunch. I, I, I was going to ask you. So speaking of that is, is do you get up to Arthur Avenue? In the Bronx. I get up to Arthur Avenue when, I, when I'm in the Bronx, but like I can't, you know, I can't. I used to love the Pasquale Rigoletto's cheesecake, Oreo cheesecake. Wow. That was sensational, but I can't take like I'm doing insanity now, Max 30. This is the thing, Chris. We never took a honeymoon. We got married last September and our wedding was postponed twice because of COVID. So we are going, uh, you know, in the middle to the latter part of the summer for three weeks to Europe. I've never been to Europe. We are going to a wedding. Two friend, two friends of ours are getting married an hour outside of Paris. So we're going to do Paris, Rome, Portofino, Amalfi Coast, Mykonos, and Santorini. Oh man, that is unbelievable. That's life changing. Life changing. So I've never, I've never been to Europe, but I am. And you know me, like yeah, you're I've never. You're doing it right the uh, first time. We're doing it right the first time, but like I've never, like you know, I mean, you know how it is, Chris, in this business. Like you know, for like 25 years, you know, you're trying to build. And build yeah. and build. So like, I never took vacations. So like, this is like the first. This is probably the first time I would say probably till I was thir- since I was like thirteen or fourteen that I took a legitimate like going someplace you. for a vacation. That wasn't That's like awesome. like I visited friends in L.A. and stuff, but I was like at UCLA practice before I met them on Sunset. Yeah, it's a little. It's just a little side trip. Uh, yeah, exactly. I, I was gonna. I was gonna wait until I saw you or talked to you um, to ask you how long Fordham was going to be able to keep Kyle Neptune as their head right. coach. And it turns out he didn't even last long enough for me to ask you about it because now he's replacing Jay Wright to Villanova, which I'm That's very amazing. upset about. Yeah, I mean, you know, again, it's a testament to the job that Kyle did, you know, in his first year as a as a head coach that he was able to get the Villanova job after just one year. And, yeah. you know, I mean, I, I said this to a lot of people, nobody knew how Kyle was going to do as a head coach. He obviously had great pedigree and obviously had great, you know, credentials for being, you know, the top assistant in a blue blood program, but he usurped expectations in his first year at Fordham. I think the most impressive thing about Kyle is, you know, Fordham was off to a really good start. And, you know, arguably their best guard and best player, Antonio Day, had to leave the program early in Atlantic 10 conference play. And Fordham was still able to finish with a 500 record. So it's not easy to be the guy who follows the guy in sports. But Villanova has a proud program and a great, you know, nucleus and culture in place. And, you know, I think, you know, what we're seeing is because from I talked to somebody, you know, at Villanova here in the last couple of days, because Kyle was at Villanova as an assistant, recruited so many of those players, and has also worked with that staff. It's, you know, it's been a seamless transition. Is Jay Wright, I know you've had Jay Wright on your podcast. Is he done? You know, you you say never say never. Uh, It wouldn't shock me, you know, if Jay obviously gets into broadcasting. It wouldn't shock me at all if he, you know, tries, you know, his hand at doing some TV. I'm sure, you know, he'll have his pick of where he wants to work, but... You know, I would have a very, very hard time seeing Jay Wright coach another college job other than Villanova. You know, he's going to be the special assistant to the president at Villanova. You know, I know for a long time he's been interested in the NBA, but I saw Jay, my wife and I saw him in Florida in May. And, you know, Chris, I really got the sense, and I think more people are thinking this way, you know, after the pandemic about, you know, just, you know, enjoying obviously life as much yeah. as you can, especially, you know, if we were just talking about, you know, the trip I'm yeah. taking to Europe and stuff like that. Yeah. But you think about it like Jay Wright, you know, at Villanova, think about this for a second, you know, went to four final fours, won two national championships and is in the hall of fame. I mean, for a program again, that really until he got there was not synonymous with Duke, with Kentucky, with Kansas and UCLA there's nothing more for him to accomplish. And now he gets to stay a part of the university, which I which I know he loves so much. And remember, his wife, you know, went to school there as well. Yeah. And again, he's going to be able to there's other things, you know, he wants to obviously pursue. I'm sure he will. But I'll say this. I would be shocked and you would probably have a hard time believing this, Brian Baldinger as well. And I would be speechless if we're ever talking one day and Jay Wright is coaching at another college or university not named Villanova. Uh, I agree. And, uh, and you know, he's he's got a lot of things going for him, Jay Wright, as you pointed out. 
one is particularly like yourself, and I'm and I man enough to admit this, very handsome individual. So, <laughs> uh, John, we really appreciate you joining us, man. Thanks for the lowdown and uh, and the insight. College basketball insider, collegehoopstoday.com, CBS Sports Network. Follow him on Twitter, Instagram. The great John Rothstein. Thanks, John. Always great hanging, Chris. Thanks for listening to the Voice of the Nets podcast. My thanks to Jeff Peterson, Nets assistant GM, college basketball insider John Rothstein. Tune in. We'll be back soon. Remember, just hit subscribe and you'll be notified every time we have a new episode out. I want to thank Tom Dowd, our producer, engineer Isaac Lee. For our entire crew, I'm Chris Carino. Thanks for listening to the Voice of the Nets.